The Berlin Wall fell at the end of 1989. And what happened then was effectively uh, you had this country that had been run by an authoritarian government of old men who'd been in power for a very long time, supported by a secret service which would um, arrest, interrogate, persecute, ruin the lives of anybody who spoke out against the regime. So it was a deeply authoritarian regime which had a rhetoric, bizarrely, of human rights and the rights of man and so on. But it was a regime run on fear. It is my pleasure to have joining me on the Ideas Have Consequences podcast, Anna Funder, and she is the author of a new book called Wifedom that I have not read. I uh, look forward to reading that book, but actually, I wanted to have Anna on to discuss her book, Stasiland. I picked this book up many years ago when I was in London, and I was there to do a big event at Oxford University. I had a lot of time to waste in between filmings, and uh, and I saw this when I went down to London. I saw this in a uh, in a bookshop, and I picked it up, and I was just immediately captivated by it, and I've since gone back to it a couple of times, uh, Stasiland, which I think is just simply excellent. Anna, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. It's my pleasure, Larry. Thanks for having me. Um, let's, let's have a little bit of backstory here as it relates to this. First of all, I like the way, and I read a view, review of your latest book, and it sounds like you've done the same thing in this particular book where you've made yourself a part of the story. You're, you're telling the story from your perspective and your journey on how the story came to be. And that's what you did in Stasi land. Um, tell us a little bit of that backstory. What moved you to write this book in the first place? Yeah, so Stasiland is actually 20 years old now, even though it's one of those strange books that seems to be becoming more and more current because it's about a surveillance society in East Germany, a kind of pre-computers, um, pre-smartphones, a total surveillance society. So funnily enough, uh, I'm getting a lot of interest in it now. Um, but a long time ago, I studied at the Free University in Berlin before the Berlin Wall came down. So I was an undergraduate studying law and lit English literature and German. And I went there. And so I was living in Berlin, in West Berlin, which was a city with a wall around it. And outside of that wall was this country that we couldn't really go into except for day visits. And that was a blank on the map uh, in which allegedly under communism, people were more equal um, and there was no drug addiction and no prostitution and all sorts of evils were being avoided. But I wasn't sure that that was the case. And I made friends with people in West Berlin who had been kicked out of East Germany. They were mainly writers and artists who were kicked out in the 80s. And I became very curious, what kind of a country gets rid of some of its brightest minds by piffing them into the next door country, which was West Germany? So after the Berlin Wall came down, I was able to travel around, as everybody else was, uh, the former Eastern Bloc countries, including East Germany. And I met people who had resisted 
the East German communist regime. And they were enormously interesting to me. They were people of huge courage who had basically said to this incredibly efficient, ruthless surveillance regime, I will not betray my family, friends, colleagues, um, neighbours to the secret police, and therefore they had suffered for it. So I was interested in these stories of courage. And it's interesting that you talk about the method of telling the story. I was, I'm only really in that book and in wifedom uh, as it's necessary to kind of get the reader into the story. So I only feature there as a sort of way in or a framing device or a kind of reaction shot. In the case of Stasiland, it's, you know, what it was actually like in the late 90s and in 2000 to be talking to these resistors who'd spent time in prison or been in exile. It turned out to be four that I put in the book, four people who had really heroically uh, found the moral courage to resist the Stasi regime. And they were a schoolgirl who tried to climb the Berlin Wall called Miriam, a student called Julia who wanted to be a diplomat for East Germany, but it didn't turn out that way, an alcoholic, very famous rock star who modelled himself on Mick Jagger uh, called Klaus Renft, and a woman called Sigrid Paul, whose baby was being treated in a hospital in West Berlin the night that the Berlin Wall went up in 1961, and she was separated from him. So they are the four main stories in the book. But when I had those stories um, from these unbelievably exciting to me interviews with these very brave people, I thought I really better eyeball these Stasi men. I need to find some representatives of this surveillance regime uh, and talk to them. Um, and in the 90s, the Stasi had disappeared. It was a bit like KGB agents going undercover or being snapped up by um, companies, really, and disguising themselves as Westerners. That was what was going on in East Germany as well. And I met a woman who was trying to write a thesis on Stasi agents and operatives. And she said to me, they're never going to talk to you. So I speak German um, and I drafted an advertisement for the local newspaper. So we are going back now to the pre-digital age in 1997 for the local newspaper in a place called Potsdam, where a lot of ex-Stasi agents lived. And I had somebody check my German language because, you know, there are some kind of conventions that you need to have for abbreviations or for advertisements in newspapers or whatever. So I had a fluent native speaker check my advertisement, but what basically ended up in the newspaper in Potsdam was an ad which was put into the personal columns of this newspaper, which I hadn't expected. And it read, um, Australian writer seeks Stasi men, view conversation. Uh, you know, <laughs> and, and I know, right? And my home phone number, because this is in the pre-mobile age. So I stayed at home in the rather dingy single, flat. Single flat. white female. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Single white female seeks <laughs> guy. So my phone rang hot and um, it was very interesting. I had to sit by the phone 
and answer it. And there were a lot of um, a lot of men at that time. The Stasi was an entirely male organization organized along military lines, and it had uh, a lot of um, what were called unofficial collaborators as well. So they were people like you and me who were not visibly um, members of the Stasi, but were informing on our family and friends, say. And East Germany, as far as we know, we don't know exactly what the ratio is, say, in North Korea, but East Germany was the, or if not one of the most thoroughly surveilled regimes on the planet. There was one Stasi agent or collaborator uh, for every seven people. So there was someone in every kindergarten, school, pub, church, uh, workplace, and so on. But I wanted to see the, these men. And um, yeah, the phone rang hot and I made a series of assignations, as one of them puts me, um, with them to talk to them about their side of the story. And about, I don't know, maybe 10 or a dozen of those, the most interesting or the most representative or the most hilarious, actually, are in Stasiland. You know, it's um, it's very interesting. I was talking to my mom recently, and uh, my father was a career soldier, and um, they were stationed in Germany um, in the early 1960s. And she was saying, I was saying, you know, remind me, mom, did any major events take place when you were there, when dad was in the 101st Airborne? She said, oh, yeah, you know, the, the Berlin well, Wall went up, and there was the... Um, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy assassination all while they were there. And I said, what were the conversations like? I mean, this is less than two decades after World War II. What were the conversations like with the German people? And she'd say, well, they wouldn't go there. That was not a conversation that they wanted to have. Now, I have since, I, I uh, have spent a lot of time in my own um, graduate study of European history, um, particularly Russian history. I've spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe. And even I, so many decades later, find that sometimes people are very afraid, even now, to have these conversations. You kind of ran into that, didn't you, when you were first approaching these people to get their stories? Yes, there was a lot of reluctance to talk about it. So the Berlin Wall fell at the end of 1989, and what happened then was effectively uh, you had this country that had been run by a, an authoritarian government of old men who'd been in power for a very long time, uh, supported by a secret service which would um, arrest, interrogate, persecute, ruin the lives of anybody who spoke out against the regime. So it was... Uh, a deeply authoritarian um, regime, which had a rhetoric, bizarrely, of human rights and the rights of man and so on, as if it was protecting it. But it was a regime run on fear. Well, of course, don't they all? <laughs> exactly. And as soon as the Berlin Wall fell, the Stasi uh, was no longer operational. So interestingly, the Stasi files, the Stasi kept more files on its own population, a relatively small population of 17 million people. So the post, this regime existed only post-war, so from 1949 to 1989. In 40 years, it kept more written records on its population than in the rest of German history since the Middle Ages. So these are effectively the stolen biographies of 
an entire population. Um, and the people who were doing that did not want those stolen biographies, which had records of, you know, torture and murder, particularly in the early days, and massive surveillance and massive betrayal to become known. There was also a lot of collaboration with West Germany and possibly with the US. So there was a cache of these files that had to do with uh, foreign espionage. So the Stasi were running agents in West Germany and they were very good at it. Uh, they managed to you know, co-opt some West German politicians and get the vote changed in the interests that it wanted in East Germany, in the West German parliament, for instance. It had um, you know, people very close to the prime ministers in, in the West and so on. Those files called the Rosenholz files were taken by the CIA. So the Americans also actually didn't want those files to be opened and become known. So that's the foreign affairs files. The files on the population itself, um, the Stasi started shredding them in during the demonstrations in 1989 before the war fell and burning them. So in the um, 14 regional offices of the Stasi throughout the country, you could see smoke, you know, behind the Stasi officers as they were burning these stolen biographies and stolen files on the whole population. But a lot of them were saved. So, and people now can go along and you can find in your own file who it was uh, in your family or workplace who was informing on you, why it was you didn't get into university or didn't get a job or um, were followed in the street or whatever. So the people who were doing that were really worried that they would be lynched in the streets. You know, there were kind of acts of quite violent revenge in other Eastern Bloc countries, um, but there weren't so much in East Germany as it turned out. But these men really went to ground. They didn't want to be found. Um, but when they saw my ad, bizarrely enough, uh, I think one of them said to me, I wanted to talk to you because I thought that maybe in Australia, people wouldn't be so prejudiced against us and we could get the message of communism out uh, in another place in the world where it might work. They were not so happy with my book because that's not the message that Stasiland really tells. But it was very interesting to talk to them, um, mostly anonymously. They didn't want it to be known who they were because they were worried about also legal reprisals, which at that time were still possible. It was possible to still sue them. Um, now it's not possible anymore. And actually, ironically, the Stasi had, you know, they gave themselves degrees. They had PhDs. They had from Stasi universities. They had um, uh, work histories of kind of obedience to the regime and so on. So really, in aggregate, they have done much better in uh, the post-communist world than the people who resisted them, who were put into prison or um, kind of psychologically more broken. Interestingly, the Stasi had the reputation for being much more radical, uh, a true believers more than the KGB, which, uh, which trained them. Is, was that your experience? Yes. This is something that actually worried um, quite a few of my German uh, interviewees, you know, and they would say, what is it about us Germans uh, that makes us do these things? And by that, they meant take these 
surveillance regimes or authoritarian totalitarian regimes the nazi regime immediately before the stasi regime and the stasi regime to the nth degree be so unbelievably thorough in the implementation of in this case really inhumane surveillance methods um the implication in that is that there's something in a kind of German character that makes them more thorough than generalizing now yeah. they're sort of Russian cousins or something I I mean Germany was a much richer more technologically advanced better organized country uh, always than uh, Russia um, and with a better educated population um, both under the Nazis and under the Stasi. I think that really it's nothing particularly to do with an identifiable national characteristic. And I'd be really reluctant to generalise in that way. I just think that the more agents you have, uh, the more fearful uh, the population is, the more obedient they will be. So I, I suppose it's not really an act as a kind of chicken and egg answer to your to your question. No, but uh, that's an interesting that's an interesting reply. Um, you know, in in talking with with people who have suffered under under communism, say in Poland or in Russia, uh, they will often say that the that the uh, KGB worked to create this illusion because uh, they weren't particularly competent or organized, as you say. You know, the the Germans were, but they they sought to create this illusion of omnipresence by simply randomly arresting people, which would sow discord among people who had done nothing because they would assume someone in their midst had reported the joke they had told over lunch or over dinner or something. And of course, the KGB knew nothing whatsoever of the particular joke. They were just simply creating this kind of illusion. And your guilt or innocence was just immaterial, as Solzhenitsyn um, points out. I thought, you know, go back to what you were saying earlier, Anna. I, I thought the way you included yourself in the story was was perfect. I, I thought it was appropriate because you were my guide. You were my you were my Virgil through this hell. <laughs> and, you know, I picture you, um, this lovely woman standing in, as I recall, um, a subway terminal. Is that where it was? Or, a, you know, you're standing and talking with this woman with the smell of the toilets. The smell of, I mean, I'm smelling that as I'm, as I'm reading this and, um, your musings. And here she is telling you that she's, you know, she knows some royalty or, or something that I've had almost th that exact experience in Eastern Europe so many times. And I found myself transported there and you as a, as a Westerner, I mean, I know you're Australian, but your Western culture. Uh, you're helping us to navigate that and understand it. So I thought you did that perfectly. I also thought it was very poignant and moving. Telling the story, is your name Anna? I'm trying to remember. I'm trying to Miriam, climb the maybe? wall. And yeah. Miriam, excuse me. Um, the story of Miriam and, um, wow, what courage. What was she, 16? Yeah, exactly. So Stasiland, the book, does start, as you say, in this, kind of in this underground toilet rather unromantically <laughs> in Alexanderplatz uh, in the winter of 19, I don't know, I guess it's, I don't know, 88 or something. Um, yeah, that there used to be, I don't know if there still are, there used to be what I think of as toilet 
madams, you know, people who looked, cleaned the toilets and looked after them and you left a coin in their bowl and stuff like that. Still and are. It's still, and she told me, um, she told me that she had been there during the Stasi time um, and that everybody used to come over to her toilet and she had a prince in her toilet once, a Western prince, and she was very <laughs> proud of it. And then, um, uh, yeah, she said that she wanted to travel now that she was able to leave the country and she thought she might go to China and have a look at their wall, which I thought was hilarious because it was like she'd sort of been living underground right next to the Berlin Wall and just wanted to see this other wall when she got out again. Um, Miriam was one of the most, it was still is, I'm in touch with her still, um, extraordinary human beings Good. I have ever met. And when she was 16, um, she lived in Leipzig. Uh, she was a school at school and the secret, well, the regime pulled down a very beautiful church in Leipzig. Leipzig is the city of Bach, you know, uh, and of great music. And they pulled down a church without any consultation. And so the girls, Miriam and her friend Ursula, took it into their minds to make these little protest leaflets and distribute them around town. They were arrested for that. Uh, all their schoolmates were interrogated until they were given up and found out and put into uh, prison for a month in solitary with no communication with the outside world and not with their parents either until their trial. And told so, that each had ratted the other out. Yeah, exactly. It's a total Hollywood scenario, you know, written by Hollywood for the Stasi or vice versa, who knows. When she got out, she got on a train by herself at 16, the winter of 1968, and went up to Berlin. And basically, I mean, you have to read it to believe it. You had to be there to listen to this extraordinary and wonderful woman tell me this story many years later. But she basically found a ladder in these gardens that bordered the Berlin Wall, <laughs> which was one of the most fortified, you know, military installations on the planet, and got up and got over the wall, the first part, and then started making her way across these sand traps and past Alsatians, uh, trained to kill who were on chains and so on. And I won't say what happens, but she really, really, you know, nearly did it. Uh, but doing that then affected the rest of her life. And she became someone who had this, I mean, she must have had it already, like many people who seem like ordinary people. Many, many, many people, I think, in my life I have found this thing that I'm so interested in, which is this basic conscience and the courage to stick by it that exists in so many people. And I think that it's that kind of, um, I don't know, it's almost a holy thing, you know, where people know what's right and wrong and they will not be told. And she spent the rest of her life really telling the regime what she thought of them to her great misfortune, but she was never morally bent out of shape by them. That was what was so interesting to me, I think. Just on your other point about the Stasi or the KGB, you know, arresting people willy-nilly uh, to create fear, I'm sure that that did happen. One of the Stasi men that I talked to was an, um, an instructor in the Stasi university so-called in Potsdam he was a little creepy actually you know he turned all the lights out 
um, at the end of our interview in his house and had me <laughs> sitting there in the dark and told me that no taxi would come to his house to pick me up and so on. But he and he had at the top of his house uh, what was called a conspiratorial room where um, people used to be taken for interrogations. And he'd kept it there a bit like Miss Havisham with its vinyl chairs and so on, because he was so proud of it after the regime fell. But he said to me at one point, you know, in our law lectures to Stasi recruits, we would say you could just open an investigation into someone uh, and investigate them. And I said to him, because I was trained as a lawyer, uh, so without evidence, and he said, as soon as we opened the investigation into them, there was cause then to investigate them. So it's very Alice in Wonderland. You know, we declare an investigation open, therefore we declare there is something to investigate here before we have any evidence. So it's it's guilty until proven innocent, you know. Absolutely incredible. Um, did you find in your, I'm, I'm sure there are probably others that you spoke to that you didn't include in the book who were victims of the regime. In my own experience of talking with people, be it, you know, Christians who are suffering in Nigeria, um, right now, arguably the most dangerous country in the world, whether it's uh, being in China, and I've since been banned from China because of the people with whom I associated with there, or it's people who formerly suffered under the Soviet Union, um, many of them have what I call a kind of depth of soul. It's like this suffering has produced a kind of pearl uh, that you just simply don't, as a rule, encounter in the West. Uh, I did, was that your experience? Yes, I, I think I'm. we're talking about really similar things here. And, uh, you know, the language of Christianity is so beautiful about the soul. Um, and I'm talking about conscience and courage. And those things are very connected because you are, the Stasi wanted to warp people's psyches and their souls out of shape by making them collaborate. So it's very hard to believe in yourself as a decent or good person if you're informing on your family and friends, and that could cause them harm. That will really twist a person out of shape. But people were really um, given brutal choices about informing. So Julia, this brilliant student who's um, one of the other characters, real person in Stasiland, you know, she was told your sisters will never be able to study piano unless you inform. Uh, your mother will lose her job and so on. So it's present this choice of being warped morally out of shape uh, is presented to you as if you don't do this, you will be causing more harm to those that you love. But there are people who will just say to a regime effectively, I don't care what you do to me. I will not let myself be warped out of shape in that way. And I think it's that kernel of our humanity that is so uh, holy, if you like, that is so extraordinary about human beings. And I actually do see that kind of thing in the West. I do see it, you know, even in acts of physical courage, like in Australia, we have a lot of bushfires, wildfires, and there are people who will literally 
volunteers who will literally run into them to save strangers. You know, I think there is something about the human animal that is connected. We are all responsible for each other. And for some people that is really to the forefront of their sense of being, and they will do these extraordinary things. And that was what was so, um, I write from a position of wanting, of, of admiration, really, and enormous curiosity about what it is to be human. Yeah, so so the reason that I'm interested in the Stasi regime, I, I, I could have written a story about firefighters in Australia or something or, or um, civil rights activists in the US. You know, it's the same kind of exploration of what it is to be human. It's just that the situation in Nazi Germany, like in my novel, All That I Am, or in uh, the GDR, like in the nonfiction book, Stasiland, is so extreme that it's um it's a very dramatic situation your 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 goodies and your baddies to put it totally over over simplistically are really clear so the amount of courage it takes to resist is enormous and it it's a kind of the regime was an experiment on humans if you like and it looks as if human beings failed because everybody obeyed and everybody was frightened and my point is that's not true. There were people who resisted. There are people who look like ordinary people, schoolgirls, loose old rock stars, uh, housewives, who actually just said no. Everyone's gonna encounter pain in their life. The questions deal with the degree of one's pain and the source of one's pain and how we deal with our pain. In this course, I'm speaking very personally about my own pain and some of the lessons that I've learned in coping with pain, how we minister to people with pain, and what kind of perspective are we to have on the big questions that surround pain and human suffering? Why would you take a course like this? Well, presumably, if you haven't suffered in your own life, you will encounter people who do, and undoubtedly some of them are people who are very near and dear to you. I think it'd be very helpful for you to take a course like this in order to understand what they're experiencing and the way that you minister to people in those kinds of circumstances. So I'd love for you to take this course of mine, and I wanna tell you this, that when you subscribe to Tome, you get access not just to my course, but to more than a hundred other courses that are dealing with very practical issues and assisting you in living and in flourishing. So where can you get this course? Well, you can't get it at Amazon. You can't get it at Apple. You can't get it at Netflix. You can only get it at Tome. So I want you to go to tomeapp.com pain to learn more about my course. Let's get back to the podcast. Well, your book is uh, is particularly interesting. It's you know it's history bottom side up. It's it's not the uh, the telling of what the the people in power, the decision makers were doing, but the it's telling the story of those people, the stories of those who deserve to have their stories told. And for that reason, it is particularly powerful. Thinking in terms of the soul and resistance and whatnot, I often think of um, often think of 
conscience, as our conscience, as the soul's voice, uh, the voice that's uh, um, crying out um, when a wrong is committed against us or we see an injustice. And uh, earlier this year, I was in Romania um, to go to an old Soviet prison that is um, in Petesht, Romania, something called the Petesht Experiment. And what fascinates me about it is that, of course, these regimes are fundamentally atheistic, and yet they kind of acknowledge the existence of the soul because the 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 purpose of the Patesh experiment was to take these um, men, and I think it was exclusively men who were held in this particular prison, and to um, torture them to such a degree that they're willing to violate their consciences. So the idea was to, to to torture an individual. They were deliberately imprisoned with their friends or perhaps with members of their family. And they would be told, given a pair of pliers, for instance, and be told, go and pull your friend's teeth out. Um, and under duress, some of them would do this because they had been beaten so severely, they had reached a point where they no longer wanted to suffer. And so now they were willing to do this. And of course, those who suffered through this, the stories they tell is that your real suffering, the real torture was the torture of your conscience because you were willing to do these things that they made you do. Or a priest um, was repeatedly beaten and told he would serve human excrement and urine as uh, as you know, uh, sacraments to the other um, inmates who were in the, these kinds of things. So the existence of the soul, you know, it's funny because I, I have sitting right here, um, Oscar Wilde's Dorian Gray for a, for another reason. There's a wonderful line in that book where um, Dorian says that he's discovered that the soul is a terrible reality. And I am sure that many who suffered under these regimes or were the themselves the torturers members of the Stasi. Did, did you find that any of them were, were they just individuals like this fellow you just described? He's kind of proud of, you know, his, his room of horrors, you know, upstairs, or were some of them tortured souls, individuals who now suffered the guilt for the horrible things that they had done? I think what, one of the things that's important to remember is that, um, when East German, the East German Stasi regime fell, there were all of these agents who were all of a sudden uh, had represented the regime, had done terrible things, often in secret, to their neighbours, friends, family, colleagues, um, and that there could have been awful reprisals. There actually weren't. I think that people were in general too demoralised or horrified to find that their uncle or boss or brother had informed on them and so on. Um, when I spoke with them, I was very interested in exactly the question that you're identifying, which is, is it possible to have been a career Stasi person or informer and to have told yourself your whole life, I believe in this system. Uh, it is important to arrest or torture or control or strike fear into the hearts of people because we need to do that in order to maintain this wonderful communist system. So they had been trying to justify extraordinarily awful behavior to people uh, on the basis of an idea or an ideal. And I thought when that's over and it's absolutely clear that the regime was 
morally, socially, politically, economically decrepit. Uh, do you say to yourself as a former Stasi agent or uh, employee, yeah, uh, that was a terrible thing. I was mistaken or misled uh, or swept up in it and I have enormous regrets and remorse. And I thought to myself, how much regret and remorse can a human being manage? And this was for me not a question that I approached with any sense of superiority. You know, I was briefly quite a bad lawyer in a big law firm that represented some quite terrible clients, really. And I understood what it is to want to have a safe, well-paid career uh, on the side of the powerful before I stupidly gave that up and became a writer. So I had felt the seduction of this kind of thing. And I wondered what these men would be feeling afterwards. But except for one of them, they all continued to support the regime after it was over, saying effectively, um, we had to do these things in order to maintain the regime. You have to break some eggs to make an omelette, meaning effectively break some people to maintain our power. Uh, then they continued to meet in the 90s. This was the most interesting thing that is very little reported on. The Stasi would get together in groups, um, secretly, really, um, still organised often according to rank, apparently, uh, and look at the Western media and all of this information that was coming out about them and seek to enact reprisals against people who were speaking out against them, even in democratic unified Berlin in and Germany in the 1990s. So there were instances which have been documented of former East German civil rights activists who had their brake leads cut in their cars to kind of reverse engineer an accident or whose children were picked up after school to give them uh, the terrors, you know, about what had happened to their child and then returned after a couple of hours. There were really bizarre things that happened, quite imaginative for the Stasi things, like pornography would be delivered to someone's wife as if it had been ordered by the husband somehow to disparage him. Or in one case, even apparently, a truckload of puppies delivered to someone. I mean, really bizarre things. But these were this was a kind of chicanery to torment, to show that they were still thinking of themselves as powerful even after they'd lost all power and all reputation in secret. I put those things exactly, which had been reported in the Spiegel, a big German magazine, into my book on page, I think, 84. And um, a group of ex-Stasi men who used to be called, exactly one of these groups, who had been called Das Insider Committee, the Insider Committee. And in the 90s, they were becoming more adept at the Western legal language of human rights. And they changed their name from the Insider Committee to uh, the Society for the Protection of Civil Liberty and the Dignity of Man, which is kind Very of Orwellian. Really this Very Orwellian. And they sued uh, me, basically, um, for having said that groups like them had done those things that I just described to former civil rights activists. And my then publisher, I've now changed publisher in Germany, didn't defend the action very well and took out that paragraph. Uh, I changed publisher and in more recent editions asked that that paragraph be reinstated in the German edition of the book. I mean, so you can read it in the other 
25 countries in which the book is published. But in the German edition, it's redacted so that the page looks a bit like a Stasi file. And that paragraph is blacked out, but there's a footnote that says this paragraph is blacked out because of legal action taken by a group of former Stasi men. Um, so they still, they were used to power and they were getting the hang of a legal system in the West in order to try and maintain it and to continue to strike fear into the hearts of people like me, I suppose, or people who resisted them. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say to you, just in connection with the terrible Romanian experiment that you are describing, is that in the end, I felt that um, the Stasi, uh, possibly like their Romanian counterparts, at some level, when they were imprisoning or torturing uh, or ruining the lives of people who were resisting them and refusing to collaborate, at some very deep level, I did ask myself whether they thought that they were interacting with people who were morally better than them because they had the courage to resist them. So that's, a, if you like, a kind of monkey grip situation of moral complexity where you are punishing people who you recognise as being brave enough or honest enough or... Um, good enough at some really basic level to resist the evils that you are yourself perpetrating. Wow. Um, did you ever at any point, uh, did, did you, you feel um, unsafe? Did you feel threatened? You know, I've been asked that a lot and um, there's a certain, I, I, not really, apart from a kind of creepy guy who did, um, as I say, turn off all the lights after I'd finished interviewing him in his house, which was in a remote kind of settlement outside of Potsdam, uh, where he said, oh, the taxi won't come and collect you and so on. And I just described that scene. But really what we're talking about here is a system of evil and violence to people physical violence, but mostly in the end, psychological violence. So it was the kind of violence in the 70s and 80s that Amnesty International found it hard to track because they were doing things like, um, you met, you met raise uh, the issue of some of the stories I didn't include in the book. So I didn't include stories of um, really famous civil rights activists because I was interested in looking at this courage in stories that hadn't been told. and of so-called ordinary people, people that could be you or me, um, and uh, kind of bearing witness to that. The stories I didn't include were ones of, say, doping of the athletes or of the use of um, psychiatry and um, psychiatric drugs to... Uh, there was one man who was a Christian, and as you say, Christianity was banned and disparaged, um, although the churches were active in East Germany um, uh, and also riddled with Stasi agents. Um, yes, but it was an atheist state. And there, there was a, um, a, a really lovely Christian man who had his life ruined by having to present every two weeks to be injected with a psychiatric drug. Those stories I didn't put in, they didn't quite fit in what I was doing and they totally deserved um, books of, of their own. I didn't feel frightened because this was as at, it's really at its base a regime that did these things to people by committee. 
So decisions were made by um, people very high up and effectively by committees to do these things in a kind of institutional way. And it wasn't like um, the regimes in, say, Latin America, which were kind of more dramatically bloodthirsty and violent into the 70s and 80s, you know, throwing people out of helicopters and so on. That wasn't really happening. So I felt that I was dealing with rather grey men who had operated behind this sort of so-called safety of committees and that they were unlikely to do anything to me and that they no longer had the power to try to frighten me. I mean, obviously they tried to with the with the lawsuit. It was quite funny, actually. I was in Australia when when I got the email saying that this ex-Stasi group is, is going to sue you. And in my house at the time, I worked in the attic and um, I was just pregnant with my second child who's now turned 19. So it's telling you how how long ago this was. But I, I got this email saying they're suing you. And I thought, wow, I, I'm not sure what to do about this. So I went downstairs into my kitchen and I turned on the tap and no water came out. And I can remember having this flash of kind of paranoid, um, you know, really making myself feel more important than I than I ever was. But I had this flash of thinking, oh my gosh, the Stasi have got this planetary reach and they are going to thirst me out, you know. <laughs> Of course yes, that's what I was talking coming. about. Yeah. Is this idea <laughs> of creating, creating, you were experiencing what it was like because they're very good at creating the impression of omnipresence. I, I think it's Hedrick Smith who, you know, who wrote the book, The Russians in the, uh, the 1970s as a bestseller and then the, uh, the new Russians after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he was, uh, the Moscow bureau chief. I don't remember if it's for the Washington Post or the New York Times doesn't matter. But he tells this wonderful story of, and, and I'm going from memory. This is a book I read, you know, 30 years ago, but he tells this wonderful story. I don't know if it was him or it was a colleague who on New Year's Eve is alone in the, the Times or the Washington Post office in Moscow and then leans back and wonders aloud and says, you know, I wonder what the KGB does on New Year's Eve. And then his phone rings and he hears, and he hears um, champagne pouring and people laughing and the phone hang, uh, hang up. Now, he was convinced in his mind that was the KGB who were listening, who heard him say that and decided to have a little fun with him. Others said, well, that was just your colleagues who were out having fun and knew you were sitting in the office having to work. But it was the same kind of reaction. I mean, there's a kind of terror in that. There is. There's a terror in surveillance. And I think that that's something that we need to be really conscious of today because uh, we really live now in an age of blanket and total surveillance. You know, we carry what Orwell called in 1984 telescreens around in our pockets. We have them with us at all times or on our wrists. You know, we can be tracked. Uh, facial recognition software in the streets of China, for instance, and many, many other countries. The Uyghurs are being so discovered this, this way. Uh, yes, hunted. Yeah, so the technology is more advanced, but the psychology, of course, of human beings remains the same, of those in power, the way power works, and of those who will resist 
the way resistance works. And I think that's, um, for me, the way why Stasiland, which is a deep dive into particular people, stories of courage, resistance, collaboration in East Germany is current because it's really trying to describe it really the is of that. Well, and imagine, I mean, can you imagine what the Stasi would have done with the kind of surveillance uh, technology that is available today? Listen, I mentioned that I was, I was in China uh, maybe a decade ago and, um, I associated with a, a variety of people who are resisting the regime in one way or another. I didn't have any encounters with the police. I, as, so far as I know, everything had gone smoothly. However, a few years later, I'm applying for a visa to go back. And the Chinese government replied that I would be allowed in, but only if I signed something promising I would write nothing negative about the regime. <laughs> and of course, I said no, because I knew I, I'm actually quite grateful for that because it was, it was a bit of a shot across my bow because I realized, you know, they're going to find heroin in my bag and I'm going to be beaten with a rubber hose and, you know, in some red corner somewhere. But then recently I was in Cuba and a very similar experience there. One day I'm, uh, I'm on my own. By this time, I'm, you know, having been in more than 60 countries, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly aware of the way these kind of regimes work. So I made sure that everything I did that day was in open. That is to say, I knew that cameras and others were, um, were surveilling me. But sure enough, that afternoon, I came back to the hotel. And the next thing I know, I was being summoned by the police the next morning. Now, it didn't matter what I had planned that day. If I was flying out, whatever the case may be, at 9 a.m., I was summoned to appear at the police station for an interrogation uh, about what I'd been doing that day and who I'd been talking to. And you had to be extremely careful. I was in D.C., I don't know, maybe a couple of years ago, and a man perhaps you might be familiar with, uh, Robert Epstein, He's a Harvard PhD, and Robert is a friend of mine now, but I, I didn't know Robert at the time. And uh, he and I don't agree on an awful lot politically, but we're friends nonetheless. Sh uh, iron sharpening iron, as it were. And here is a guy who is a, you know, a, a very staunchly on the left, and he is speaking to this audience, telling them that... Um, uh, he's he does what you do in in some sense, but in a very technological way. He was warning of the surveillance state, and then he made this statement. He said, "If you've been using Google for more than twenty years, and he said, and I would wager that most of you in this room have, Google has more the equivalent of three million pages of information on you that can be used against you at any time. But most of you will assume." that the state is a benevolent entity that has no desire to do you harm. And then he began to talk about the potential for election rigging and surveilling just about everything you're doing in predictive behavior and uh, artificial intelligence. Are you alarmed by what you're seeing taking place and the desire of some heads of state to see the creation of it all for our own good, for our own safety? Yeah, I am deeply alarmed. You know, and I've written very kind of small things about this a long time ago, 10 years ago. Um, 
you know, the motto of Google in the beginning was do no evil, which is kind of an admission of the power that they knew that they were having. You know, if you have to tell yourself not to do evil with all of the information that you're getting, uh, it's a, it's a kind of crazy slogan. I felt it was like an admission. I think what's, um, I think that we live in this age of total surveillance, which is kind of like a, you know, the, the Stasi couldn't have dreamed of this. I've seen Stasi so-called computers, which were kept in a copper-lined room in Normannstrasse in Berlin, <laughs> so that they, you know, couldn't be eavesdropped in. And they were the size of an automobile or had, something. Exactly. They had filing cabinets where you would have your files. I'm just looking that way because it's where my filing cabinets are. Your files are lined like this, and then they would literally put a knitting needle through to see where the correlations were, you know, but that's all now um, electronic. I think what's different in our time is that, um, so in Australia, for instance, we rely on government to protect us from uh, the enormously powerful tech titans who control all of this information in private hands, like Google, um, Amazon, um, Apple, and so on. They have all of this information. We and Facebook, so the Australian government tried to regulate or is trying to and has in some ways regulated Facebook. So we're dealing with um, a situation where it's not uh, the relationship between the state and these tech titans uh, is where is the, is the interesting thing, which is different from, say, East Germany, where there was no private business to control. It was all state controlled. So... Um, your friend, I think, is a legislator, so if I'm right. And so he's interested in how to rein in these uh, really unregulated kind of cabal of um, huge businesses that have all of this information on us that are un unaccountable to, uh, to elections. And we need to be really aware of that. I mean, I think it was Obama who, who once said, you know, um, it has to having so much information so concentrated uh, has never end in, in in powerful in a powerful hands has never ended well. That story never ends well. Uh, unregulated use of power and control of information never ends well. So it has we have to have really um, profound and effective regulation on those tech titans. The EU is a leader. I'm no expert on this at all. But uh, in this regard, uh, I think. Well, uh, listen, it has been a pleasure for me to have you on this podcast. I, I thought your book was was fabulous. Um, again, I read it many years ago, and I recently, I, I ride my bike uh, quite a lot and listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I downloaded it and began um, listening to it just prior to this interview. Again, I would highly recommend it to anyone, and I look forward to reading your latest book, um, Wifedom. I, so I have, I to, have say, to say... Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say, Wifedom is about George Orwell and his wife, his wife who no one knows anything about, who helped him enormously create Animal Farm and who, during the war, Eileen, his wife, worked at the Department of Censorship in the Ministry of Information in London 
on which he based the Ministry of Truth in 1984. So even though Wifedom looks like a book that's very different from Stasiland, there are some parallels um, with the examination of power. But Wifedom also looks at uh, patriarchal power as well as um, government and information power. Well, I look forward to reading that book as well. And certainly Orwell relates to this discussion. Interestingly, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's an Oxford academic asking him whose vision, whose, whose dystopian vision is winning out? Is it, is it Huxley or is it Orwell? And I think we both decided it's a bit of both. Um, it, it seems to be a bit of both. But I also read in one of the reviews on this particular book that you think that term Orwellian has been uh, misapplied and misused. So I'm fascinated to learn what that's about. Well, I don't know. I don't I haven't. I have sort of been only haphazardly reading the reviews. Wifedom is really um, is so new. I've just been touring for it all over the UK and Australia, so I haven't actually kept up on all those reviews, but I don't know that I have said Orwellian is misused, but um, yeah. I'll have to see if I can find that. If I do, I'll send it to you. But uh, regardless, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Larry, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.